This podcast is recorded on the traditional lands of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land and pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today. Hello and welcome to Give and Tote Cannabis Conversations, the show that aims to elevate the conversation about cannabis to a higher level. I'm your host, Paul, and today we welcome Hannah Scarlett-Turner, an Australian medical patient who had the unfortunate experience of being charged with the possession of a dangerous drug despite being a medical patient and despite having a prescription on her. Neither Hannah nor I are here today to dispute whether she broke the law or not, but we are discussing whether these laws are practical and whether people who use medical cannabis are indeed aware of them, and perhaps whether our law enforcement officers could be using a little bit more discretion whilst these laws are still kind of figured out. If you like what you hear today, make sure you follow us on Instagram at GiveAndToke. If you've got something to say, email us at GiveAndToke at gmail.com and help us out by recommending the show to a friend or giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. For now, please enjoy the show. On Friday the 7th of October, ABC News released an article by journalist Alexandra Utting entitled, Why Can Queenslanders with Medical Cannabis Prescriptions Be Charged for Drug Possession? I'm going to read the second paragraph from that article. Sunshine Coast woman Hannah Scarlett-Turner was charged with possession of less than one gram of a dangerous drug after being stopped by patrolling officers while walking her dog at a nature reserve in June. Welcome to the show, Hannah Scarlett-Turner. Thank you so much for having me. Very excited to be here. How lucky are we to have Queensland or maybe Australia's biggest drug criminal kingpin <laughs> on the show? I'm honoured. I'm honoured, honestly. <laughs> yeah. I'm a career criminal at this point. <laughs> so reading your story obviously made my blood boil as I read it. And as a fellow medical cannabis user, did you ever expect to find yourself in this situation? Uh, no, I really didn't. I thought I was doing all the right things. I sought out medical cannabis through my doctor, through my GP. I asked a lot of questions about how to use it to make sure I was doing the right thing. And I wasn't aware that having the prescription medication outside of the prescribed receptacle was illegal, even if you had the prescription with you. I thought as long as you had the prescription with you and could prove that you were a patient and that this was the strain, and that that wouldn't be a problem. But unfortunately, I found out that that was breaking the law. And even with breaking the law, you you know, you hope with rules like that, the common sense kicks in. But obviously your experience and how we're going to discuss it today is going to demonstrate that common sense was kind of missing from this whole experience. So before we get into the nitty gritty of your experience with the Queensland police, let's talk about how medical cannabis has helped you. When did you start using medical cannabis? I started using medical cannabis about a year and a half ago, so it hasn't been that long. Before that, I've used different pharmaceutical drugs because I have um, a diagnosis of depression, anxiety, and PTSD, which is the reason the, the main reasons that I use the medicinal cannabis. Um, so I was on pharmaceutical drugs for those um, diagnoses, and they worked for a while at the start, but I found that it was kind of a repeated situation where after a while I would start to feel numb and start to feel not like myself. I would go back to talk to the doctor and then it was always suggested to either up the dose or try another pharmaceutical. 
And it got to a point where I just felt like I was just banging my head against the wall. You know, I could keep trying all these different things and hope that something would work, but it just wasn't what was right for me personally. So it sounds like medical cannabis has replaced some of those pharmaceuticals for you? Yes, all of them. Yeah. Wow, that's incredible. And I mean, you listed three conditions there, depression, anxiety, PTSD. There's not many medicines around that can cover multiple indicators like that. And we know that through the TGA, there are a lot of conditions that are covered by medical cannabis. But there's three things you're getting the benefit from one medication for. It's really impressive that cannabis can replace that. But we've still got a lot of work to do to get people to understand how effective that is, right? Yeah, absolutely. For me, I found that, like you were saying, it's three different conditions. So that would come with usually kind of three different kinds of medications or two different kinds. The trickiest to treat is probably the PTSD. For me, that manifests itself as like moments of kind of just disconnecting from my body, disconnecting from things and feeling like in a very strange space. And there was no medication, no pharmaceutical medication that helped with that. And that's actually the thing that cannabis helps with the most is like connecting me back into my body again and like back with my surroundings. So it's amazing that it is able to help with the depression, the anxiety, but also provide relief for that with PTSD, which no pharmaceuticals ever helped with before. Isn't that interesting that you speak about PTSD making you feel like disconnected and numb, but those were some of the effects of the medicines you were given to counteract that. Exactly. Yeah. It's so strange. You know, I myself received a diagnosis of depression last year after years and years of anxiety, and it was quite a relief. It was good to finally get medicated for that. But I myself have reduced my pharmaceutical medicines because of medical cannabis. But even when I got given that medication, I was warned that one of the side effects was higher suicidal ideation. So I've gone to get help for depression and anxiety. The medicine they're giving does actually help me, but I had to spend two or three weeks on higher alert just to make sure I wasn't having those kinds of feelings. And yet here we are with cannabis, something where probably the worst thing that can happen to you is you maybe get a little sleepy, a little paranoid, a little anxious, maybe super hungry, that can happen too. Yet there's still such a stigma attached to it. So so, you know, that is the core reason you're here today, because when I saw that headline about getting charged for drug possession and reading about less than one gram, I had to talk to you more about that. So let's talk about your experience with the Queensland police. Walk us through that day. Okay. So it was a beautiful day in Noosa and I went down to the park where I always walk my dogs. It was a usual day. I was taking my, my lunch break. It was around like 11 a.m. that I went there. And then as I was leaving, so it's like a it's like a football field park with like a pony club and then there's like a public car park and in that public car park there was a few cars around but like nothing suspicious going on or anything that I would have thought was out of the ordinary anyway I'm walking back to my car with my partner but getting back into the car we should I wish we had just left straight away as soon as we entered the car but it was actually the day that the uh, verdict I uh, was around the time the verdict came out for the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial so right. we actually stopped wanting to watch and see what <laughs> happened so we're sitting in the car watching this trial and then all of a sudden three um three plain clothed men came up and approached the vehicle and started to interrogate us about what we were doing there and who we were without actually telling us they were police officers at all, which was really scary, to be honest. I bet. Because I, I couldn't, you know, because there had been nothing unordinary going on and no crime scene or anything, when there was five men around the car, police was the last thing that I thought. I had no idea what was happening, but I automatically just went into just shock. And then they just kind of had a few questions, what we were doing here. From their line of questioning, I believe that they thought 
we weren't local, that maybe we were traveling. And then they told us that the area we were in was a known drug hotspot. And they asked us if we had anything illegal on us. And I was completely forthright and said, I don't have anything illegal on me, but I do have like medicinal cannabis that I'm prescribed. I honestly didn't really think before I said it. I just, I'm the kind of person that's just like, tries to do the right thing. I guess when I'm scared, I want to do the right thing. So I just was like, ah, this is what I have. Like, here's my prescription, everything. So there was around, there was five police officers and four of them, as soon as they found out I had the prescription, they're like, and that was, I was visibly shaking at this point. And they were like, it's okay. Like, don't worry, you're going to be fine. And then there was one particular officer who didn't want to drop it. And he said, well, where did you get it out from? And I had it in the bag near where the prescribed receptacle was with my prescription, thinking that was fine. It was such a small amount that I didn't keep it in the 10 gram container that it comes in. It was literally like crumbs of like what was left. So keeping it in a 10 gram container, it was just ridiculous to even try and get it out. Well, I'll just interject there and quickly explain for the listener who doesn't understand. Medical cannabis in Australia comes in a 10 gram container. We now understand that you have to keep it in there at all times, but that as we're learning is not practical. You know, some people 10 grams last them six months, other people 10 grams last them a day or a week. It's different for everyone, but to carry around a 10 gram container, it's a lot of money and it's a lot of cannabis to have on you. So while it's the law, there are practical things you need to do sometimes to have it conveniently on you. Exactly. So yeah, he then informed me that what I had done had broken the law and, you know, I told them that it was definitely my prescription. I asked them if they could, if they could test it, if they wanted to. They told me that there was not enough to test eventually, which I'm like, it's enough for me to be charged with having a dangerous drug, but not enough to actually test. Um, and then, so on the spot, they charged me with yeah, possession of a dangerous drug, which was crazy because it's my medication. They then seized it from me and they also took my prescription as well. So just to clarify, so they seized the the baggie that had the less than one gram, but they also seized your medical cannabis prescription. Is that yes. correct? Yes. Right. Okay. I, I wasn't aware of that, which just adds another layer of frustration and difficulty to this. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. And then to make that even worse, they actually didn't admit that in the QP9, um, which is the police's case against you. They said that they didn't take that from me, <laughs> but yet they did say that they took the Canatrek container, which is the thing that has my prescription on it. So I understand you were offered a drug diversion program. Yes. Tell us about that. They offered me drug diversion and said, this is the best option for you. You then won't have to go through the courts. It's the police um, drug diversion, which is separate to like the court mandated drug diversion. And I just asked them, what is the point of me going to drug diversion when I'm a patient and I'm lawfully using my medication? And they pretty much said, look, they're pretty much going to tell you the same thing. We're going to tell you, give you a little slap on the wrist, and then you'll go on your way. And I thought about it and I'm like, well, this is clearly the easier option. You know, it's clearly the easy option for me to go and do like an hour of drug diversion or whatever and just move on with my life. But then I felt like this is just not based in logic. And if I go along with that, I'm now part of the problem because how is this going to change unless people refuse to go along with that broken logic? Because ultimately in a drug diversion program, you have to admit you've got a problem and also yes. and, and take some kind of punishment of like, a good behavior, like you're not allowed to use that substance and things like that. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So the whole aim of the course would have been to 
teach me the dangers of cannabis. <laughs> <laughs> the most dangerous thing about cannabis is having to deal with the police who are arresting you for it. Yeah. So it was all just absurd. And I, I just was trying to like break it down with them and be like, this doesn't make sense to me to go to drug diversion. It just, it doesn't sit right with me. Everything in my body was telling me not to do it. Uh, my boyfriend even at the time was like, why didn't you just do it? It would have been so much easier. <laughs> but I was like, no, I was, I was kind of had righteous anger about the whole situation. And so, yeah, I refused the drug diversion. And then I was given um, a notice to appear and a notice to provide my like fingerprints and get a mug shot and everything before the court case, which is something I wasn't aware of either. I thought that you only had your fingerprints and mug shot taken after you were kind of like proven to be guilty. So that wasn't a learning curve for me as well. And what's that experience like? You know, you said that you were already kind of visibly shaking and struggling in this experience. What's that like to be processed through a police station? Uh, it was... It was terrifying, honestly, like just the whole situation was as soon as the police had kind of left and the shock really hit me and it was a mixture of emotions because, you know, I had this righteous anger that I was doing the right thing. I'd taken all the right steps to not break the law and just do the best that I could. But at the same time, I I'd, I'd started to kind of feel this anxiety that I had done the wrong thing and that I was a criminal and started to like question myself kind of and my like moral compass. So that was really, that was really hard for me. And I was, I was kind of ashamed about it, which was weird. That was a weird reaction. Like I didn't want to talk to people about it at the start. I was really kind of like secretive about it and just embarrassed, which was odd. But yeah, a few days went past and I, I actually was trying to fight to not go and give my fingerprints and my mugshot because I didn't really want that to be in the system, especially for something so small, but there was no way around that. So I went in on the final day of seven days, I think, to go in and do it. So the final day I went in and you have to go in by yourself and they they walk you through the police station right down to like where the cells are and everything. And you're in this like dingy little dark room, like standing in front of like the mugshot board. I really felt like a criminal. <laughs> It was crazy. Most people I've spoken to seem to kind of paint the similar picture. You know, it is a scary, it is intimidating. You know, obviously the police don't want things to be a comfortable experience, but they don't seem to put any effort into preventing some of the discomfort or at least just trying to make it an easier process because it has to be done. So why not do it in kind of slightly better conditions? But I think what you went through kind of demonstrates why people need to stop expecting decriminalization to maybe solve all the problems with our drug laws. Decriminalization of drugs still attaches this idea of you having a problem with it. Still it attaches this idea that if you get caught with it, you need to go and do something about getting rid of this. I think the lockdowns taught us that Australians can be pretty critical of each other and can jump onto kind of snitching and dobbing on each other. So I'm sure there are people listening today being like, oh, you broke the law, you did the wrong thing, therefore, you know, do the crime, do the time. But what we're here to talk about is the fact that no discretion was used. Yes, the law was broken, but is the enforcement of that law keeping our community safe? And is this a good use of police resources? Like, I've kind of always hated this statement, but it's kind of relevant here. Like, shouldn't you be out arresting the real criminals? Yeah, definitely. I think also another factor to that is that they were all child protective officers as well, which was another really interesting element of it. So they were all, I assume, patrolling together, all child protective services, and they stopped me and charged me with, with possession of a dangerous drug for having under a gram of my prescription. Yes, I did break the law unknowingly. I know now and I won't do it again, but 
it did seem very strange to have so many police officers traveling together, especially in that department, coming in, you know, checking out drug hotspots or whatever they were calling it. <laughs> While I was in Canada, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police stopped a man outside of Vancouver, about two hours north of Vancouver. When they pulled him over for a, a minor traffic infraction, they noticed his car smelt like cannabis. And inside the car, he had about half an ounce. They took the cannabis off him, got him to do a field sobriety test, decided, yep, you're sober, gave his cannabis back and sent him on his way. This is the kind of policing we want. Yes, you can be curious. You can come up to people and go, hmm, is there a problem here? We can smell cannabis. We think you might be under the influence. But in your scenario, we see the exact opposite approach. And you kind of mentioned four of the police officers were all right, but one wouldn't let it go. And these are the types of officers I often warn my friends about. I don't think every police officer is out there trying to ruin our days. And I don't think that every police officer has a problem. And I personally know police police officers that are okay with cannabis, that wish they didn't have to worry about it, that have raided and shut down grow-ups that had the best horticulturist they've ever seen. Not every cop is like this, but there are enough out there trying to ruin your day, having a shitty day themselves, trying to make a point. So talk to us a little bit about that experience with the police. How has this informed your feelings of the police and, and what was it like to deal with them? Yeah, well, it's interesting because I've always, I feel like, had kind of a healthy attitude towards police. Me, as a female in this world, I personally wouldn't feel safe walking around the streets without law enforcement. So I'm really, really grateful for police. I have law enforcement in my family. I have a lot of respect for police. I think I do naturally have that, you know, what, that feeling of if you see a police officer, you feel like you're doing something wrong that I think most of us have, but never any negativity towards them. And that experience... Honestly, I'm I'm just glad that the four officers were there, particularly one of them. He really took time to come speak to me, give me his card, was really kind and compassionate with me and let me know that if I have any questions to contact him. So it was a strange dynamic. I do also feel like they were playing like good cop, bad cop. There was kind of head games going on. They were like separating me and my partner and it was just so much going on at once, so many moving parts with so many different personalities. I feel like they were kind of playing up those personalities. Like there's one that's kind of cracking the jokes with you. And then there's the one that's really serious. The one that's like trying to still look through the car. It was, it was a really interesting experience. I don't judge the police based off that experience. I think that there's people in every industry that are going to be you know, take their job a little too seriously or be a bit rigid or, you know, have whatever personal bias and bring that into the workplace. But overall, my opinion of the police, I still hold the police. I still appreciate the police a lot and value them a lot after this experience. And I think, you know, it could have been a lot worse than it was. It didn't go the best it could have gone, but in the end of the day, no lines were crossed. I wasn't like hurt or it wasn't, it, it could have been worse. Communities need to have trust in their police. And I think that you have retained your trust in the police because of your intelligence, your life experience, your ability to kind of critique that on an emotional level. But I'm sure a lot of people would come out of an experience like that, not trusting the police, thinking I can't go to them for help. I can't trust them. You know, you did even mention it felt like there were times that they were playing tricks and things like that. So good on you for, for still being positive, but I can certainly think that if the experience had have been 
literally a slap on the wrist or a conversation or, you know, a warning or something like that, your opinion of the police would be even greater. You wouldn't even need to spend that time thinking, oh, do I still trust these guys? And yeah, good on you for still appreciating them. No, that's so true. You get bad apples everywhere. You can't hold it against people. And I think the biggest thing is the stigma around it. So many people still look at cannabis as this really terrible, dangerous drug. And I mean, for that police officer, maybe he really thought he's doing the right thing. He's protecting the community. I really in time hope that I can have some people on this show who are opponents of cannabis, because I think there's the space and the room to have conversations with people. I'm just still yet to find a good argument. So, I, you know, it's I've done it on this show a couple of times. It's an open call out. If anyone is anti-cannabis, come on the show and speak to me. Like, I'm not going to retort. I'm not going to yell back. I do want to hear a good argument because, unfortunately, like we saw in New Zealand last year when there was a referendum for cannabis that was practically 50.5% to 49.5% and got voted down. The No campaign was heavily invested in by a conservative group called Safer Access to Marijuana. A bunch of US churches invest in this organization and they put out kind of the old school information, all the fear-based stuff that makes people scared of cannabis. And that ultimately won out. And that's the power some of these kind of anti-cannabis people have. It's more about power and influence than good arguments. So, you know, there's still a lot of learning to go on and we hope that people in positions of power like the police can start to use a little bit of nuance, a little bit of discretion and go to an effort to understand this better. Obviously, you didn't have that cannabis in the container. Were you ever told by anyone that you couldn't do that? You know, that that was part of the rules. It's got to always stay in the container. No. And since that happened, I went back through all my communications with my doctor, with the company that I get the medicinal cannabis through. I went on the TJ website. I tried to find this law and it was really hard for me to actually find in clarity. But no, I was never told by anyone. And since I've shared my story, I've had so many people reach out who are medicinal cannabis patients who have also never knew this information and have actually been breaking the law every day by even like putting a little bit in their vape and having their vape with them that a lot of people were doing that and had no idea that that is breaking the law and that's possession of a dangerous drug so there definitely needs to be more education around it how are we supposed to do the right thing if we don't know what that is well in the abc news article there's clinical researcher janet schloss who spoke about this that essentially the law the way it is set up is even using your medicine is technically illegal then because it's out of the container i clarified this actually with the police because <laughs> i was very confused about it because i said to them well what if it was so the medicine has to be kept in the container what if I was in the process of getting that medicine ready to use or using it and the police officers more than one of them they confirmed with me that I was able to use it as prescribed and I was able to have it in the container but technically any preparation of it is illegal <laughs> yeah and they confirmed that with me that to get it out, to then use it is illegal, which was just like, it just doesn't make any sense. The judge actually brought up a really good point when I finally went to court. He said, I understand that you make this the law, that this is the law so that people can't just use cannabis that is not their medication. But what is to stop them putting other cannabis 
into the prescribed receptacle, once the seal is broken, that is that rule, that law is useless anyway. You can put anything inside the container anyway. What difference does it really make? And I can guarantee you that there are medical patients, because I've spoken to them, who are absolutely doing that. You know, the cost of medical cannabis is quite prohibitive. You can get an ounce of cannabis on the black market anywhere from 200 to $400, still ends up being cheaper than your medicine is. And people are just, yep, I get one of my prescriptions filled. Once that's empty, I fill it up. It says a lot that we need to change these laws. We need to address a lot about medical cannabis, but certainly punishing people that are doing their best to follow the law isn't teaching anyone anything. No, I agree. And I understand that like I I should have been punished for doing the wrong thing, but to charge me with possession of a dangerous drug seemed very dramatic. Big time. Or even just drug diversion. Like there's no real area in the law for this right now. It's just you break the law and you're using it illegally. There's no, you break the law, but you're a patient. So what happens there? You're just treated like you're not a patient. There's so much work to be done. You know, the the driving laws of THC being in your system, ultimately leading to a suspension of license, irrespective of whether you're a medical user, irrespective of when you've used it, irrespective of whether you're intoxicated or not. There's so much work to be done. And every time I think we're taking multiple steps forward, I I read something like your story and, and I just, it alarms me about how easily things can still go wrong for people trying their best. And so, you know, one of the things that kind of came up for me is your experience with the legal proceedings and how that went from, went for you. Like when I lived in Canada, I noticed, you know, I've been to university, I'm a school teacher, I I know how to read and how often I would read like a legal document, something about my visa and it was so hard to understand and I just thought how much of this system is set up to kind of go against the little guy and there's variations of what the little guy is. I know you've spoken about the fact that you had help with getting a lawyer through your parents and things like that. These are things not everyone has access to. And I do want to talk about those legal proceedings in detail, but I thought we might break up the conversation with a bit of a quiz. I myself have not spent a lot of time in Queensland. I think I've been there two times in my life. I hope I can do Queenslanders proud. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of pressure. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, this is going to determine if you're ever welcome back there or if you're just going to be stuck in Melbourne like the rest of it. So let's see how you go. Question one. True or false, Queensland is the second largest state by landmass in Australia. True. Oh, that is correct. Number one is Western Australia, followed closely by Queensland. Yay. Good work. Off to a flying start. <laughs> Question two, which small cake was named after a governor of Queensland? Was it a Lamington, a Tim Tam, or a Macquarie cake? Ooh, I don't know, but I kind of, like, I want it to be Lamington. That is correct. Yes. Named after the governor of Queensland between 1896 and 1901. Two from two, you're killing it. <laughs> All right, this is a music question. Question three. Which band has a statue in their honour in Redcliffe erected in 2013? Is it In Excess, the Bee Gees, or Men at Work? I'm pretty sure it's the Bee Gees. Am oh, I my right? God. You know Queensland so well. Yes. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm impressed with myself. <laughs> All right. Well, you're halfway through. You're three from three. You've already got a passing grade. The rest is just house money. Question four. In which Queensland town was the 2008 Baz Luhrmann film Australia filmed? Bowen, Mackay, or Noosa? Ooh, Mackay? Ooh, there's your first incorrect Damn, one. Damn, Bowen. Bowen, yes. <sighs> oh, well. <laughs> Close enough. All right, you're still killing it. <laughs> All right, question five. Which Queenslander has won four Grammy Awards? Is it Keith Urban, 
Lachlan Watt or Amy Shark? Ooh, Keith Urban? Oh, yes, you are yes. correct. All right, lucky last, and this one's a bit of a softball, I think. What is the name of the cricket ground in Brisbane? Is it the MCG, the SCG, or the Gabba? The Gabba. Oh, five from six. You know Queensland. Look, you're still welcome back there. I'm so impressed. Oh, thank you. <laughs> very, very good. All right, let's get back to your story because it's an incredibly interesting one. Let's talk about the legal process. How did you go about challenging this? You know, what kind of happened after the fingerprints and the mugshot? And you've been very gracious. I see lots of people commenting on you saying, what a great mugshot. You know, <laughs> obviously it was a traumatizing experience, but you've taken that in jest. What came next? Well, okay, so I'll start from the start. So I had the situation with the police and I, I've i never been through the legal system before. I was very naive to how everything worked. And so I was genuinely asking the police officers, well, if I do take this to court, like what happens? Like, what do I do next? Like, can I speak to a, I was asking the police officers for legal advice. <laughs> Where's <laughs> my phone call? <laughs> and um, I was told um, that I could access the free legal aid. The police officers told me they said that I could actually call them straight away and it would go from there. So I was like, yep, perfect, righteous anger. Let's do it. The police officers left and I, called the Queensland Legal Aid only to find, no, it does not work like that at all. Um, if you want the free legal aid, you have to apply and then you don't actually get to speak to your lawyer until like 20 minutes before you go in to see the judge. I wasn't happy with that because my situation was a little complicated and um, I needed to be able to like discuss everything in detail and provide documentation and proof evidence that I had to back up. Going that route just didn't seem like it was possible for me. So I was then in the situation where the free legal aid wasn't going to be an option. And so luckily I was able to reach out to my father who had some connections and was able to hooked me up with one of the best lawyers in Queensland, apparently, actually. So that was really amazing. I spoke to them about everything that was going on and they were really like empowering for me at the beginning, really like, yeah, this is awesome. We've got a great case. And then the the you have to wait until the QP9 comes out. So the QP9 is the police's case against you. When you've been charged, that's what the judge sees. They see the QP9, they see the police's case against you, and then you have an, um, a lawyer to argue your case to either say guilty or not guilty. The only way you get to really explain your side of the story is if you say not guilty and you take it to trial as well. So while you're being charged, you can't say your side. You just have to go with what the QP9 says. And in the QP9, there was actually some things that were not true about the situation. Um, the sequence of events was incorrect. They said that I didn't tell them about the cannabis until my car was searched, which was not true. They also said that I didn't tell them until the very end that it was prescription, which is not true. Also, I, I, I told them it was prescription before I'd even showed them anything. And then they said that I didn't provide a prescription, even though they'd confiscated that from me. So I was outraged when I saw this QP9 because I, I called my lawyer and I was like, they've lied. What am I like? I need, how do I get this to the judge? Can I like submit like something? Look, Hannah, police lie every single day. There's nothing you can do about it unless you take it to trial. And that was pretty shocking to hear that. And to be 
in that situation over something so small, you know, something like under a gram of medicinal cannabis and to be in the situation where you're just being lied about and you don't have a voice and you're actually paying for lawyers, but you still don't have a voice. And at the beginning, I was like, well, let's take it to trial. Like the judge needs to hear like the whole story, everything that's happening. And she really was discouraging me from doing that. She's like, it's going to drag it out like another potentially like 18 months, potentially longer. It's going to cost around $20,000. And in the end of the day, you broke the law. So you'll, if it's, you're, you know, charged with guilty, you're guilty. And then you're just out of pocket all this money. I was faced with a situation where I had to either take it to trial or plead guilty. And pleading guilty to possession of a dangerous drug felt really wrong in me because I didn't believe I had a dangerous drug. So to actually stand before a court and say that you're guilty for a crime that you don't believe you've committed, but technically you have, was really challenging. Um, so I went to go into my original court case the day that it was set and my lawyer actually decided to get that adjourned just so we could make sure everything was ready. So I got it adjourned, which dragged it out a bit longer. It was just crazy anxiety all before the court case, just thinking about it every night, what's going to happen, totally out of my depths. And then finally the day of the court case arrived and I, my lawyer was replaced with another lawyer. So I ended up having a lady that I'd never spoken to before <laughs> um, come in and represent me. Did you get a, a, a reason for that? Like, was that explained to you? Um, I was told the day um, before the court case that I could either adjourn it again because my lawyer was away or I could take someone else. And I was so over it at that point and just wanted to get it over and done with that I was like, is this lady up to date with the case? Does she know how to represent me? I was assured that she was. And so I just was like, went ahead with it because I just didn't want this to saga to drag on. And I was also in the middle of moving to Melbourne, so I couldn't actually extend it keep extending it because I was trying to get down here so I went into the court the day of the court case and watched a few other people go up and present their case and some crazy situations where there was like you know you're in there with people who are committing violent acts against people like there was a man before me talking you know about how he had just like beaten his mother to the point of being in hospital, and I'm there waiting with my charge of under a gram of medicinal cannabis. <laughs> going, what am I doing here? And so finally went up to see the judge. You don't really get to say anything. The judge started by saying, "I've read the QP nine. Hannah fits the criteria for drug diversion." Is there anything that I should hear from you to my lawyer? And that's when my lawyer actually explained to the judge that it's medicinal. And that's what he actually heard for the first times in the QP9. There's no um, proof that it was medicinal, even though they had the prescription. So I had to then with my lawyer provide that prescription to prove that it was medicinal. And then he turned around and said, well, this is an interesting conundrum because she's lawfully using the cannabis. She's lawfully had it, but she just didn't have it in the prescribed receptacle. Then he went into why that law is stupid. For me, this was an amazing moment though, because I'd been trying to talk to lawyers and trying to talk to people about this. And it was like, no one was seeing common sense yeah. this whole time. And I was like, are you guys serious? And then finally the judge was like, what? And I was like, oh, finally, someone can see what I'm seeing. And, but unfortunately, because I did break the law, he 
decided to give me yeah, a good behavior bond for six months. He didn't think drug diversions. So we didn't give me any drug diversion and a $300 fine. So it could have been worse. I, I was pretty happy with the outcome, to be honest. I was happy that it was over. It felt like a form of closure to even hear the judge. He knew how ridiculous it was. So that was like healing for me. But yeah, then afterwards you get also slapped with like a, a de- defender's levy as well. So the whole thing was just ridiculously expensive. I did see a rundown of costs and obviously it's infuriating to have to spend the money. But what was the personal cost? Like what impact did this have on you and your relationships? Uh, it gave me like paranoia afterwards. Like any, like when I wasn't even doing you know, I'm just going about my day doing the right thing. I just had this, like having to watch my back, like feeling like I was being watched, feeling like I was being monitored, feeling like somehow I was doing the wrong thing. It created a, a strange environment for me when I was actually using my medication as well. I got like bad anxiety. If I would use it, I have a little mighty vape and I would have a vape at night and then I would just like start to feel like bad and like unsafe and like just paranoid that there was something else that I could be doing wrong. And it went on for a while, to be honest. It affected me so much that I didn't want to talk about it afterwards. So this happened. I didn't want to speak about it. I didn't want to go to the media. I had my dad, I had a lot of people in my life. I had connections to the ABC wanting to take on this story. And I was like, no, I can't do it. It was just had really just riddled me with anxiety and paranoia and I just wanted it to all go away and then I don't know exactly what shifted I think just after a certain amount of time and after being able to really reflect on the situation I realized that I did do the best that I could have and I felt like it's my responsibility to shine a light on this because there could be so many other people in my situation that just have no idea that this is the law and also How is this ever going to change if no one's talking about it? That responsibility, I kind of took over. And then I decided to reach out, speak to the ABC. In doing that, that was all the paranoia, all the anxiety, all the stress, everything went away once the ABC had published that story, which was something I didn't expect because it felt like I used my voice. I got to tell my side of the story. I think the thing that was affecting me the most was not being able to tell my side of the story and having these lies said about me and just not being able to defend myself and just kind of feeling lost in that. So it was like taking my power back to be able to tell my side of the story. And then just like the outreach of people and so many people in similar situations, it's It's been amazing. I'm so glad that I did it. And I just think it's so important to just break this stigma. One of the common themes in this show, and I mention it almost every week, is that there is an element of risk-taking involved in being a cannabis advocate. You know, almost everyone that's been on this show has suffered some kind of consequence, whether it's judicial or societal, in regards to using cannabis. You know, my guest on my last episode worked at a medical cannabis clinic in Guelph, Ontario, was raided and arrested by the police. Another guest who grew up in Mexico, who left Mexico because friends of his were beheaded for selling hash. So we see that all across the world, there are all these challenges, but you didn't really take a risk in order to have to make this sacrifice and make this compromise. Yes, again, you broke the law, but having less than a gram in a baggie isn't the risk that I keep talking about and that our other guests keep talking about it. You'd have to go through this much for so little. 
is not something I really expected when I kept thinking, yeah, people have to put their reputation on the line a little bit, have to have difficult conversations with families and friends or employers about using medical cannabis. But what you went through isn't exactly what I expected. So, you know, thank you for sharing your story and thank you for being brave enough to kind of move past that tension and that anxiety to share this because I do think anyone with a functional use for cannabis has somewhat of an obligation to share those experiences with people. I really appreciate that you're willing to kind of move past the tension, the stress, the trauma and share that with people. And I think that's really important. What are you hoping to get out of kind of sharing this story with people? Definitely education. I want people to understand what the law is, understand what they're allowed to do, what they're not allowed to do. But one of the biggest things that's really come up since all of this and the main reason I'm still doing it, still talking about it, is the stigma attached to it. I think, you know, especially I've spoken to a lot of women in the cannabis space who have just said that the stigma attached to women, it needs to stop. I have people in my family who approve of cannabis and some that just don't at all. And, you know, my grandma, she's a cancer patient. She went through chemo, not being able to sleep at night or eat and wouldn't do cannabis because of the stigma around it. It's people who are suffering every day who aren't giving this a go because of the stigma. Like that's why I'm doing this really is to break that stigma so people can at least try it and see if it's going to be a better option for them because it really can change your life. That's fantastic. Did you learn any lessons about kind of the police system or the judicial system that kind of will inform the way you conduct yourself going forward? What were the lessons learned? The immediate lesson learned, like it's not the takeaway lesson now, but the immediate lesson I learned was, oh my God, don't just be so forthcoming. Like just maybe just don't be so forthcoming. And also don't just keep a little bit left over. Use it. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, oh my goodness, crumbs. Wow. If only only they weren't still there. But the biggest lesson now, I think, is just to really educate yourself on your rights and the laws and to educate each other, come together. If there's experiences like this, if one person learns something new about the law, we need to kind of make that community to protect each other. There isn't really a space for that. When I was looking up afterwards, I'm like, where do you find the, on Instagram? Can you find information about medical cannabis in Australia? And it's it's really hard to find that information. So the more conversations like this that are happening, the more people doing work like what you are, the more education everyone will have, the more we'll understand our rights. The more of a community that we will have, the more we'll be able to take care of each other and make sure that everyone's doing the right thing. Cannabis community comes up a lot. And having worked in the industry in Canada, I realize at times it can be complete bullshit. It's a desire rather than a reality. But these are the areas in which we can support and help each other. It isn't necessarily just about like, oh, which buds do you like smoking, man? And, you know, that quality sucks. It's actually, you know, what's your relationship with the plant? How is it helping you? How can we ensure other people understand that? And I think that is our mutual responsibility to share these stories, get the word out, express authentically and in a vulnerable fashion how it's helping 
us. And, and thank you for sharing your vulnerabilities about how it's helped you. It is a beautiful plant. It does so much. It may not be for everyone, but it offers a lot to a lot of people. And we're still so far off getting those benefits. You know, CBD is technically now legal for over-the-counter sales, but the TGA haven't approved anyone to produce it. So we're still just dealing with backwards laws. You know, I had a lot of people hit me up about 12 months ago. It's like, CBD is legal. Where can I get it? I'm like, you can't. So we're still <laughs> so far away from kind of kicking those goals that we need to. But thank you so much for for kind of sharing your lessons and your stories because it's it's a cautionary tale what you went through. Yeah, no worries. Thank you for allowing me to share my story. I would just like to say as well, you touched on something then, but it's not for everyone. It's definitely not for everyone. And I think even if it is for you, I think one thing that's really important for cannabis users to ask themselves is, why am I using this? Am I using this as an escape or am I using this as a tool? Because that's the difference. If you're using it as an escape, it's not going to amount to anything great. If you're using it as a tool, that's uh, how I believe it should be used. And that goes for you, if, you know, if you've smoked, if you've, if you've used it for 10 years plus, like ask yourself regularly, am I doing this to escape from something, to run from something, or am I still using this as a tool? And I think that's, how we move forward in a safe way with this. Well, you noted that when you were kind of struggling, when you were still dealing with this situation, it was actually increasing your anxiety and increasing your stress. Not necessarily was the cause for it, but where you were at, that sensitivity increase that cannabis does give us. And I think that's where a lot of the benefit comes from. I know that it increases my sensitivity. I can identify areas of my body or my mind that aren't functioning properly because of it. And then I do the work to address that. But you raise a really good point. I think a lot of people smoke or vape or take edibles as an escape, you know, knock myself out, numb myself to the world. But that's the stigma we're trying to fight, this yes. lazy stoner idea. I joked with you off air that every podcast I've done, everyone has been bang on time. We are not lazy stoners. <laughs> we are not unreliable. We are incredibly punctual and thoughtful of other people. Absolutely. And I think it enhances those things because it's something that causes you to reflect on, you know, what am I contributing to the rest of the world? You know, how, what energy am I giving off to people? What, what am I doing to make this place better? You know, so you are more conscious of not wasting other people's time and coming from that place of empathy where you do want to be more punctual. You do want to do the right thing because you're really in touch with that, like soft side of yourself of how can I do better? What would be your advice to people that find themselves in a similar situation? You know, you obviously said, understand your rights, know what you're entitled to. But, you know, let's say someone messages you on Instagram and says, hey, Hannah, I've just been arrested for possession of a dangerous drug. What would you advise them? I would advise them that, first of all, like this has happened, but it's not their fault. They haven't done anything wrong. Really reassure them that they have been trying to do the right thing because it, it's scary when you're going through it and it feels like, no one's going to think that. You even question that about yourself. Reassure them that everything's going to be okay. And I would really encourage them to talk about it. I think the more people that are transparent about this and kind of ringing the alarm on these situations, the more there's going to be people outraged and people fighting to change this. So anyone going through that situation, find support, find someone you can trust and you can talk to about it. And when you're ready, tell your story. 
because that's what's going to change things. That's great advice. Well, we've hit the point in the show where we have a little segment called Poles of Wisdom. And this is where we share a snappy or easy fact that the average person needs to know about cannabis. What's your pole of wisdom? My pole of wisdom would be more towards like the hemp, the plant itself. A lot of people don't realize the environmental benefits of this plant. As you know, we have trees that absorb CO2 out of the atmosphere. Hemp plants actually absorb four times more than trees. So if we had hemp forests everywhere, imagine how much CO2 we would pull out of the atmosphere. And I think that's something I really want to highlight as well in this conversation are the environmental benefits also of this plant. There's so much you can do with it. Paper, bioplastics, biofuel, insulation, the list goes on. Where has your kind of passion and interest for hemp come? Is that prior to medical cannabis? Has that been in tandem with it? Where has that come from? Prior to medical cannabis, um, I'm an environmentalist. I love our biodiversity in this country. I'm very passionate about deforestation. That's one of my biggest fights that I'm trying to fight in my life is to just bring awareness to that. And, you know, even with climate change and everything, that big issue, I think it's something we really need to kind of separate down into little individual issues. And I think that hemp can solve a lot of those little individual issues. If you're looking at CO2, it can solve a lot of those issues. If you're looking at like water catchment areas to protect the Great Barrier Reef, I could go on about it for days, but that's definitely something that I see missed a lot in this conversation is the actual yeah, sustainability involved with it. That's fantastic. And obviously more to think about than just the kind of medical uses of cannabis is the practical uses of the hemp plant. My understanding is that hemp was an incredibly broadly used medium up until about 80 to 100 years ago when I believe it was the Hearst family with their newspaper empire kind of quashed that because they saw that this thing was going to take away their ability to produce paper and to sell paper. So, you know, again, it's that kind of nefarious reasons why we're in these situations. Here we are in 2022 suffering the consequences of really poor decision-making in a different country from a really long time ago. So let's keep our fingers crossed and and do the work to kind of get hemp back to where it deserves to be. You know, I grew up uh, using hemp shampoo, thinking I was the most badass guy. I'd cut out the little weed leaf from the bottle and stick it on my <laughs> school diary. I was I was not using cannabis, but I thought I was edgy. But hey, it turns out I was actually saving the environment from an early age. No, that's it. No, it's it's amazing how much this plant can do. I mean, even when it comes to like fashion and the amount of water that like cotton uses compared to hemp, there's just possibilities are endless. And I advise anyone to listening to just like have a little Google, go on a little like deep dive and find out because, you know, there's so many different little problems that we're facing today in this modern life. And I really believe a majority of them could at least be helped by this plant. And it's time that we really start to put the research into it that we haven't been able to do for years. Well, Hannah Scarlett-Turner, it's been an absolute delight to speak to you today. Thank you for sharing your story. Where can our listeners reach out to you? They can reach out to me on Instagram at han.scarlett, which is H-A-N dot T. And I'll be sure to put a link to that in the show notes. Your story is incredibly interesting, incredibly infuriating, but thank you so much for being with us to share it today. Thank you so much for your time. It was lovely to meet you. Give and Tote Cannabis Conversations is written and produced by me, Paul. Music written and produced by Big Mike. Follow us on Instagram at Give and Toke or get in touch by emailing giveandtoke at gmail.com. 
You'll also find us on Twitter and Facebook. All opinions expressed by program guests are solely their current opinions and do not necessarily reflect the position of Give and Toke. Content discussed in this show does not constitute medical advice. Cannabis is not legal everywhere, so please be aware of local laws. 